It's a joy and privilege to be with you tonight. We're going to be turning in God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Our text passage tonight is verses 11 through 15. We're picking up where we left off. And just by way of preface, as we heard this morning, as Pastor Dale preached to us from the book of Galatians, uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the beginning, the foundation of the Christian life. And so as the Apostle Paul here gets into uh, further details on the nature of rules, relationships, service in the life of the church, this is all on the foundation of grace, uh, on the basis of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, turn with me now to 1 Timothy 2, verse 11, as we come to hear our Lord and Savior speak to us by his word. Well, actually, begin at verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter, chapter 2, uh, while we'll focus on verse 11 through the end. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness." with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness, with self-control. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we thank you that we have such a high privilege of hearing from your word. And we pray now, Lord, that you would bless your word by the work of your spirit, that we would delight in hearing your voice, that we would love you, that we would rejoice in the design that you have given for our lives, for your church, that we would glory in the beauty of holiness and of the good order that you call us into. Oh Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We pray that you would keep us from sin and override our sin in this hour and that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's something beautiful, isn't there? When watching a skilled worker working in a trade, I can remember watching an old jeweler uh, making my wife's ring in his shop. 
Every tool, every piece of equipment was used in the right way. The gold was heated and then liquefied in a little crucible, poured into a mold, and then removed and further shaped and molded. The diamond carefully selected, fitted and polished. It was marvelous watching this man with such skill and craftsmanship making a beautiful, small, detailed work of craftsmanship. You know, a skilled worker, a skilled craftsman really reflects something of who God is. God is the one who in perfect wisdom and infinite knowledge has made and continues to shape and direct all of creation from the, from the farthest galaxies right down to the order of the smallest subatomic particles. Creation is His. He's given good order for everything in it. And we know as well that in His gospel, in mercy, He brings us to Christ, brings us to repentance and faith, and, and He's calling us out of sin and disorder and chaos into the restoration, into the craftsmanship of the beauty of His creation order restored through His redemptive work. And this is really what 1 Timothy 2 is about. Christ is calling us here into God's good design, into His craftsmanship for life in His church. Well, as we look to our passage together tonight, we see, first of all, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 11, that our passage begins with these words, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, this verse here and the succeeding verses really echo what Paul has said earlier in a letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33 to 35, there the apostle tells us, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, for it is, a sh for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, in the epistle to the Corinthians, there's really a tenor of rebuke through all of chapter 14 and a number of the other chapters to the church of Corinth. The church there, including the verses in chapter 14 uh, where women are being spoken to directly, the congregation is being called back from a place of usurping God's good order for the church. We know in Corinth the worship had become chaotic People were interrupting, they were vying with each other to add what they felt was their contribution. Both the men and the women of the church needed to be called back from disorder to a God-honoring order and worshiping Him. But as we turn here to 1 Timothy 2, at the opening emphasis in these verses, which we began by looking at verse 8 last time, the emphasis here is not a rebuke to recover biblical worship. Rather, it's really a continuation of the previous verses, as we look at verse 11, the previous verses on adornment and good works, flowing into here a positive call for women to pursue learning in corporate worship. The way for a woman who professes godliness to be adorned with good works is intimately connected with what the Apostle tells us here as he brings the word of Christ. Let a woman learn quietly. 
If we think about the sweep of what the Bible says about living out a spirit of learning from the Lord, think with me of a couple of examples. What about Mary, the mother of Jesus? Mary received the word of God directly from an angel. Her response was this, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary listened. She learned. She took hold of God's will for her life in ready obedience. And we read in the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke, for instance, of Jesus' birth, His boyhood teaching in the temple, His submission to His parents, to Mary and to Joseph. And, and we read that His mother Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. You would think that Mary would have been a prime candidate for a congregational teaching ministry if there ever was one. God's Word had been delivered to her by an angel. She conceived by the Holy Spirit. She bore the Son of God incarnate in her womb. She raised and nurtured Jesus as a boy. She saw His earthly ministry firsthand, was there at His death on the cross, and was very likely among the first who witnessed Him in His resurrection. There would be few, if any men, in the day who had such a comprehensive first-hand experience of the Son of God incarnate. We know Mary was not without sin, but by grace she reflected a gracious submission, a spirit of quiet and willing trust, and of learning from God, from the one who she bore into this world. Now, there's another Mary we could mention, Mary, the sister of Martha, who sat at the Lord's feet, we read, and listened to His teaching. In contrast to her distracted, anxious, hard-working sister, this Mary had a peace about her. She was listening to Jesus. Jesus said to Martha, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. See, the call in 1 Timothy 2.11, these opening words to learn of God, to learn, especially as His Word is preached in corporate worship, is applied here specifically to women as part of, of the different roles for men and women in the church being explained by the Apostle to us here. Now, we know from the wider testimony of Scripture, don't we, that this high calling to learn of God to learn as His Word is preached and taught is not limited to women. It is for all believers. Christ calls us into life in fellowship with God through the means of our listening and learning. In some ways, to learn qu quietly is really countercultural, isn't it, today? In our culture, everyone is encouraged to speak, to post, to share their opinions, to vocalize, to shout out their passions. But every Christian, women and men, are to be persons, people, who first of all are marked by a willingness to be quiet, to be silent, to listen to the Word of God, to receive what God has to say to us, 
to meditate on it, and then to live a word-filled and word-shaped life. The adverb quietly here, learning quietly in verse 11, is in some ways obvious in its necessity, isn't it? We can't listen or learn well when we are talking. But as we see unfolded in Scripture more widely and emphasized here in verse 11, this calling to learn quietly is not only something needed to listen and to learn well, it really reflects a posture, a spirit of learning, a character of learning. And this is what the Apostle by the Spirit unfolds to us here as as he adds the additional words, this modifier, with all submissiveness. Some translations put it with complete or entire submission. Again, in our culture today, submission is often associated with weakness, isn't it? Maybe even suffering abuse. But in God's kingdom, submission is very different. Christian submission in learning from and living from the Word of God is, yes, it's humble, but it is not weak. It's no more weak than a Navy SEAL team listening to, following, submitting to the commands of their captain. They are listening. They are submitting. But it is not weak. Learning quietly with all submissiveness is not a mark of a weak woman. In fact, in 2 Timothy, weak women are those who never arrive at a knowledge of the truth who don't put the word into practice. They're contrasted with those women who by grace pursue learning quietly and grow spiritually and increase in spiritual wisdom and strength and bear the fruit of good works. Learning quietly with all submissiveness is ready learning. It's learning with willingness, with desire, with passion to do the will of God, to glorify God who has sent His own Son to buy us at such great cost and such price and to bring us into His kingdom. Now here in our text, as women are called in the context of corporate worship to learn quietly with all submissiveness, we should ask, who exactly are women called to submit to? in this quiet learning in the church. What does this mean, learning quietly with all submissiveness? Well, clearly from the whole teaching of the Word of God, the primary, the ultimate, the first sense is submission to God, to His Word. Biblical submissiveness is always above all else. It is to God It is to everything He reveals to us in His Word as an act of worship, dependence, love, and service to Him. And from this, in a derivative way, as the Apostle is unfolding in these chapters, within the context of the church, yes, there is also a a submission, a quiet learning to those men called and ordained to teach to lead in the church as and in so far as they faithfully teach and lead according to the Word of God. 
And so, for example, in Acts 18, we read the account of the couple Priscilla and Aquila as they're commended to us there in God's Word. We read that they listened to the bold and eloquent preaching of Apollos in the synagogue. But when they heard him, they took him and explained the Word of God to him more accurately. Acts 18, verse 26. This is a beautiful example of the pattern of what God is telling us here in 1 Timothy. Priscilla, with her husband, Aquila, sat quietly under the preaching of Apollos in the synagogue. But not all of Apollos' preaching was accurate to the teaching of the Word of God. What were they to do? What was Priscilla to do? What did she do? Well, rather than Priscilla or her husband standing up and disrupting the worship service, or displaying a lack of respect for the office of this man called to preach, they later took him aside. We don't know exactly how they did it. Maybe they went for a walk with him after the service. And maybe they had Apollos over for a meal. But then we read that they together, Priscilla and Aquila, together explained the word of God to Apollos more accurately leading to Apollos being strengthened in the gospel ministry that he was called to. And so Priscilla here beautifully models a spirit of quiet learning with all submission. It must have been part of her life before Apollos came along to preach, which despite all of his eloquence that day was no doubt probably somewhat of a frustrating experience for people in the congregation who knew the Word of God better than Apollos did and saw that he was somewhat missing the mark of the Word that he was preaching. Priscilla honored what God had ordained for leadership and worship in the life of the church, and she worked from her own calling to encourage, to strengthen Apollos in the calling that God had given him. And so just as for Priscilla... Learning quietly will lead to active fruit-bearing in all the different spheres of service that God calls women to. Now, as we move along in our text in 1 Timothy, we see that Paul does plainly distinguish potential roles for the sexes in the church. In verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, She is to remain quiet. What does this mean? How do we faithfully apply this word to us from our Lord? Well, first of all, from the content and the context of our passage here, Paul is clearly addressing the body and worship life of the church. The Apostle Paul is not stating here that a woman cannot be a college professor or a businesswoman, or serve in a myriad of other callings. Though, yes, there are some callings which by nature men are better suited to than women, and others which women are better suited to than men. Uh, Military combat versus caring for infants. is maybe one example where we could say the very nature of the way God has created us, male or female, man or woman, makes us better suited to one or the other. And at the same time, there are many vocations 
in which men and women can serve equally well by the way God has created us and ordained us to be. But verse 12 is not speaking to those issues. Verse 12 is speaking to the body and worship life of the church. And so verse 12 also does not mean that a wife cannot scripturally engage in discussion with her husband, mutual counsel, or even as needed if her husband is walking in sin, to rebuke him, to call him back to Christ, as she lives out her calling to submit to him in Christ. What the Word of God is addressing here is the church. And so how do we apply this verse in the context of the life of the church? Well, there are at least three clear principles that we can draw from this verse. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. First, what is said here in these verses 11 through 15, along with what comes in the next chapter on the calling of elders and deacons and other parts of Scripture, make plain that God, as God, has ordained leadership and teaching offices in the church of elders and deacons to be filled and fulfilled by men who meet the qualifications that he calls for. Second, that those men who are called to serve as elders and ministers of the gospel are given the specific task of leading the congregation in the elements of corporate worship, leading in prayer, the reading and preaching of the Word of God. And so, Scripture is clear here that women are not called to these particular roles and offices. And third, as we think of the wider life of the church, right, there's a wider life of the church outside of our corporate worship service. As we seek to honor what God says here, it's good and wise that the more a church-related event or gathering looks like corporate worship or preaching or teaching to the gathered body, the more appropriate it is for the men and women of the congregation, the leadership of the congregation, to encourage that, that men be called to lead and to teach in those kind of settings that, that come close to or approximate a worship setting or a teaching-preaching setting. Now, we know again from the testimony of Scripture that under the ordained leadership that our Lord calls for in His design, that there is a right calling and a real calling for women to teach in particular settings and areas. The same epistle as we read on in 1 Timothy speaks directly to this. The older women are called to teach the younger women in the context of the life and the body of the church. Scripture also speaks to the calling of women to teach the children. And so our Lord's call and encouragement here in 1 Timothy 2 is that the calling of women to be students of the Word, to learn and to grow in all that God reveals is for the purpose of growing worship and fruitfulness of distinct womanly ministry in the body and life of the church, and a distinct womanly ministry which thoughtfully and intentionally doesn't become an occasion to overturn the God-given callings that God has appointed for some of the men of the congregation in the life of the church.
And Paul is saying that God's redemption order for His church is just that. It's God's order for His church. And so we are to cherish it, to honor it, to protect it. Now, as, as we hear these words and, and feel these words, there's a, there's a biblical firmness and a, and a clarity to this limitation of only men being called to serve in the role or office of leadership and teaching in the church. And we might well ask the question, but, but why? Why should it be this way? Look with me to verses 13 and 14. The apostle here turns to give us a word of good and sober reminder of our beginnings and really sets some context for us what, what God's rationale is, some of the pattern of the design that God has made. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, in verse 13. We're reminded of God's creation order. Adam created first, then Eve. Now, the roles available to men and women in the church, Paul is saying, are a reflection, a reflection in part, of God's order of creation, expressed by God in the manner and time that He created Adam and then created Eve from His side, and expressed in their relationship as well as man and woman in the first marriage, where Adam was called already before the fall to lead and to nurture Eve, even as she was called to help, to strengthen, and to support him. This is God's good and holy design. In his wisdom, his craftsmanship, in bringing together the marvelous differences between men and women and the beautiful similarities and overlap between men and women. It's part of the incredible design of the fabric of the whole of his creation and the glory of His work of redemption. But why does Paul now go on then to remind us in verse 14 with these words that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor? You know, the creation order we can understand in a positive way, can't we? Just as in marriage, so in the life of the church, the Lord delights in this order. It's it's His design being displayed in the way His people serve Him. You know, we know that God has given His angels particular roles and places. He hasn't called angels to certain things that He has called either men or women to. He's given women particular roles and places and men, all in His wise order. But what it says in verse 14 seems rather negative, doesn't it? Is this verse saying that uh, women are somehow greater in sin or that they have a greater vulnerability to sin than men do? Uh, some people have tried to argue that, but the testimony of Scripture is contrary to that. It presses on us the reality of our equality of sin across humanity, irrespective of our sex, male or female, our ethnicity, or anything else. We are all sinners, equally so. And if we think of the testimony of Scripture, there are stirring examples where men led in much more profound sin and failure than women. Think of the disciples who deserted Jesus in His sufferings and death while the women remained, even at the cross. They were visibly present there. 
And so when we consider verse 14 in the wider context of Scripture, it begins to set the frame for enabling us to understand this correctly. What Paul is giving us here is a case study, really the original example, the beginning of how things went awry in our fall into sin in Adam and Eve. He's explaining that in this same movement of events in the fall, we have Adam, who knew full well he was not deceived. He knew what God had said. Adam abdicating his calling, even as Eve, who was deceived, takes over in active leadership in the pursuit of sin, and Adam acquiesces and willingly follows along. Adam's sin was open and willful, with full knowledge. Eve was deceived and took the fruit and ate, entering into transgression. Adam, of course, also transgressed. In his case, it started by abdicating his calling, by failure to speak. He was culpable as the leader who failed to lead. And so what happened in Satan's temptation in the garden is the turning upside down of the order that God had given for Adam and Eve's marriage relationship. And how was this initiated? This was initiated by Satan, wasn't it? Satan hates God's order. He deceives, and covetousness, envy, laziness, and abdication all enter and rise in the human heart. And Satan's not content with just the fall of Adam and Eve, is he? He hates the church. He wants God's recreation work, Christ's new creation work, the church, to also reject the wisdom and the love of God, the design that Christ has for His blood-bought bride, for His body, the church. And so Paul gives us this sober lesson, lesson of Adam and Eve's upending of God's order in their sin to remind us, to warn us, but also now to turn to give us great encouragement, and also to particularly give encouragement for women in their calling as part of the body. And this is what we see beautifully now in the transition that the apostle brings us to in verse 15. There we read, yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and holiness with self-control. Perhaps many of you have wrestled over what the phrase, she will be saved through childbearing, means. I know I have. I was thankful that I had a long heads up to study uh, the word here. But as we set verses that seem unclear to us, again, in the wider context of God's word to us, we can quickly eliminate what they cannot mean. And so, as we look at this opening phrase, yet she will be saved through childbearing, we know it cannot mean that women are saved by bearing children. We're not saved by works. And so this verse can't mean that salvation for women is contingent on or comes through having babies. This would be counter to the entire gospel. It can't mean that. 
And secondly, we know it can't mean that Christian women will be spared, saved from suffering or even death as they go through childbearing. Many godly Christian women in the history of the church have died while bearing children. And all who bear children experience the pains of childbearing. And so as we think of this text and we think of it in the sweep of Scripture, there are really two main possibilities that remain. The first one is that as Christian women look to the Lord, following Him in His providential appointment for those who are so called to walk through the calling of childbearing, which is a marvelous, a high calling that's unique to women, men called uh, to lead and to teach, some men in the church, some women called to childbearing, but those of these reflecting of our creation, of our sexes, and the way that God has designed, this passage might then provide comfort and encouragement to those who receive that calling, that God would spiritually uh, preserve them through this calling. This might be possible, one of the weaknesses of this, if this is really the primary intent here, is that for one, it gives a rather negative view of childbearing as almost maybe a hindrance to salvation, as a kind of a temptation, rather than seeing it as part of God's good and beautiful creation design. The other weakness is that being kept spiritually through childbearing doesn't really seem to embody the full weight of the language of saved, the language of salvation through childbearing. And so again, text in context. This first phrase of verse 15, if we read it in light of what we've just read, what have we just read about? Adam and Eve, haven't we? And the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. And as we read the opening phrase here of verse 15 in this context, we can begin to see a much more Christ-centered meaning. I think a second, a better understanding. The Apostle Paul has just spoken of Eve, the fact that she was deceived and became a transgressor in taking part in the usurping of this order. She had rejected God's good creation order. And then verse 15, following right on the heels of that, says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. When we read that in the English translation, uh, it's, we read it as a forward-looking future statement, and Paul is making a transition here in the text. He's bringing application into the present, but it is in the context of the beginning of human history, the context of the fall. And so, these words should bring to our minds the promise of the gospel. Genesis 3.15 that Adam and Eve would be saved through the seed of the woman, through the birth of the child from the woman. The calling of childbearing is a uniquely womanly calling. It is something that we as men can absolutely not do. But childbearing is also unique in that it was the means through Eve, through the covenant line that a day would come and did come that a virgin conceived, 
And that Emmanuel came, that God, the Son, the eternal Son, came down and by the power of the Holy Spirit was made incarnate in the womb of the woman, of the Virgin Mary. And then there the Virgin conceived and our Savior, Jesus Christ, was living in her womb, God with us. John Stott puts it this way, if Mary had not given birth to Christ, there would have been no salvation for anybody. And so this transition then of the apostle points not only women, but all of us, men and boys as well, women and girls, all of us as a body to Christ. Christ whose eternal purpose and delight it was to take on our flesh in the womb of a woman to be born of her for our salvation. And when we think of that, we can see that, that every childbirth, yes, of little sinners, either pointed ahead to in the Old Testament, or now in the New Testament era, reminds us, or should be a reminder to us, of how our Savior came to save us from all our sin, from every trial and trouble we go through in this earthly life. And so women, learning quietly with all submission, growing in good works, living by faith in the one born of a woman, as we read in the end of verse 15, continuing in faith and love and holiness with self-control, these women who walk life in Christ, looking to Christ, these are women who have both been saved by the rich grace of God in Jesus. And they are women, women who will be kept and brought into the full completion of their salvation in resurrection glory when Christ returns. And so as we read this passage, this gives us, doesn't it, and especially for you, our sisters in Christ, the women and the girls among us tonight, a unique and high calling, doesn't it, designed by God, honored by Christ Himself, a calling full of gifts, of fruits and graces, one that God has designed by grace in Christ, every woman can grow through this calling. Grow in faith, grow in love, grow in holiness, and grow in self-control as you're called to walk through a world where, yes, men are called to lead, but like Apollos, with weaknesses and sin as well. And together then, as we look forward to and long for the perfection of the great and good design the marvelous craftsmanship that God our Savior is unfolding here in our very ordinary sin-broken churches as a foreshadowing of what He's going to unfold in the beauty and glory of the new creation. Let's pray together. O Lord our God,
We thank you for your precious and holy and good word. Lord, we confess it's a mystery to us. We confess, Lord, that with sin in our hearts, we struggle at times to see things clearly as you have ordained, Lord, and as you call us to. We thank you that your word is good and holy, and it is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Lord, we thank you for the women in this congregation, for the girls in this congregation. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the way that you have brought them to yourself, all who trust in you, the way you are using them in prayer and in good works, in learning and serving to your glory to build up the body. We thank you, Lord, for the way there is such honor for the roles and offices that you have given. Lord, we know in a world where there is so little of that and where in our own hearts and sin it isn't there either. Oh God, we thank you for your transforming grace and we pray that you would help us to grow together as your body, women and men, to glorify you, to cherish one another, uh, to encourage each other in the callings that you have given us and together to walk this pilgrim journey, looking to you, Lord Jesus, you who are the author and the finisher of our faith. So, Lord, we pray that you would bless us, that you would forgive all our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together as our closing song of praise to God, O Church, Arise, as a song that reminds us of our call to take up the word and to live by it.
blessing of our God as you go out into your week. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.